are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and happy August. August is very special to me for many reasons. Selfishly, it is my birthday in August, and as a true Leo, I don't let anyone forget that. Maybe the more important birthday is actually the birth of this very podcast, and this month marks three years of win-win. While the podcast was my passion project, I believe it belongs to all of us in the women in innovation community and the innovation community at large. This is a platform to celebrate the voices that are so often underrepresented and to have honest and candid conversations which bring all of us closer together. Today's guest and today's conversation is no exception to this rule. Ina Lobel, who is a design director at the innovation consultancy Frog, is a super innovator with her countless patents and scope of responsibility spearheading the design and development of award-winning products as well as providing startups with a vision and strategy to enable them to raise millions in funding. Ina is also one of the winners of the Win Awards last year for her work with Campfire, a team she worked with very closely to help them raise $8 million in funding. We go into all of this during our conversation, and you will see that Ina is so meticulous and immersed into her work, which makes for a really fascinating conversation. She's a wealth of knowledge, and I hope you learn as much as I did from this episode. Hi, Ina. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be here. We're so excited to have you. We started opening up this podcast with a new question, which is really about figuring out what an innovation role or job really means. So with that, I know that you are the design director and head of New York Industrial Design at Frog, an amazing, amazing company. But what does that actually mean? What do you do in your day job? Yeah, that's a great question. So I wear a bunch of hats on a project basis. I help the team kind of think about how do we approach the question that the client has. Everything from what is the process that we should use, what are the some of the design ideas that we have. We spend a lot of time thinking about who is the product for that we're designing and if that's the right target audience, what are the features that would really resonate with them? We then go through the design process and actually build models or mock-ups, whether that's on the industrial design, kind of bringing things into physical space, or on the um, UX and visual design side where we look, make comps and we look at everything together throughout mm -hmm. the process. Um, another really important piece of my job is to help work with clients to understand how do we actually tackle whatever question or problem they have. I help them to kind of think about, you know, what is it that, uh, what are some approaches that we might take to actually address that? How do we think about the future and, and design for the future in a way that 
um, meets the needs of their business and their customers. The reason I love asking this question is because there are so many hats that innovators typically wear. And I, I thought one of the most interesting pieces about your background is the amount of patents that you filed both during your time at Apple and Frog. And I think that, you know, if I was a more junior employee or, you know, person in their career trying to figure out how do I get to be like you, I would wonder what sort of degree gets me there or what is that pathway? So, so how would you attribute, you know, whether it's your education or the steps that you took to helping you get to where you are? I think there's a lot of pathways that can get you into this type of field and in a position to kind of create patents. Um, you know, you can, I think it's definitely helpful to set yourself up with education for either going for like a design or engineering type of um, a degree. It's probably the easiest way to to get into that. But certainly, I think having a different degree, but trying to apply it into the innovation space, I think is also um, a way that you can get there. I think it's really perhaps also really important to have the mindset, you know, creating something new, you're really working in a place of ambiguity. So that's something you, um, I think, want to be striving toward and enjoying. Working toward, um, you know, working with other people and trying to collaborate, be in putting yourself into a situation where you are working at the forefront um, is also really helpful. Um, that's where I think a lot of those ideas get, get made is in teams, trying to push the boundaries, working together. Totally. And I recently had Natasha, who is the chief innovation officer at Anomaly, come on. So she's also um, from an agency background. And, you know, we talked a little bit about balancing the scope of what gets launched versus what doesn't get launched. Um, When you think about your role, how do you not get caught in the trap of seeing success as, oh, the thing that I thought about came to life and was actually, you know, commercialized versus finding that value in that ambiguity and that discovery process? And how do you validate it to clients or within your company? That's a really good question. I think for me, I think it also depends on like what you're interested in and what you, what brings value to you. For me, I've always really just enjoyed thinking about interesting problems with, with other people. So you know, it's definitely really gratifying shipping something and seeing a lot of people using the product. But I really enjoy the process of getting there myself. So I don't really measure my success by something necessarily shipping. I do measure my success by, you know, does it change the way that I think, you know, when we work with clients, they, some clients, they need to ship a product and then I measure my success by shipping. Some clients are trying to tell a story or uncover something new that they can base and and build their business on or other products. So those are, those things are equally interesting and, and valuable, you know, coming up with an idea that really hits across lots of different metrics. So something which, you know, resonates with people, which is culturally relevant, which is feasible, which kind of seems to that either um, you know is viable in the market or changes the way that people think about a certain situation those are things that 
you know, I find a lot of value in and um, kind of the way that the items that make me excited to be doing what I'm doing. One other thing that is maybe worthwhile thinking about is kind of what it actually takes to ship a product. Um, And one thing that I feel like when I was a more junior designer, I think, you know, I really was very meticulous about every little detail of the product. It felt like such a letdown when every single kind of element didn't actually make it into the product. And when you think about shipping, you start understanding how many different perspectives kind of weigh in on on the feasibility and viability of a product. I think it's really important to to keep that in mind um, as you're working on a product that's shipping is how do you collaboratively build and bring something to life in a way that still achieves kind of the core principles. And so understanding um, early in the design process, what is the product about? What are the core principles that we're trying to deliver on? And kind of really making sure that uh, the things that you're fighting for are those things that really matter uh, to to that final product experience or expression. And it's such a tough trap because, in my opinion, innovation, whether that's design or shipping a product, is so incredibly emotional and personal. I found myself feeling like I'm fighting for the customer, fighting for a feature. And then, like you said, that feature ultimately doesn't make it in the end product, but the product still works without it. So I think a part of it is just even removing your own ego from the process. But I'm not sure if you've experienced that kind of battle of your own ego versus what's best for the customer in the process. Yeah, there's definitely, design is very emotional and very personal, and I think it's a labor of love for a lot of us that work on it, and so that can definitely be very tough, Um, but I don't, I think this question of what's best for the user and the customer is one that I use to be a North Star, so it, it really helps me, I think, to step back and to keep myself grounded uh, to think about what is it that we're trying to achieve. You know, things on what's right for the customer is something that I I do spend, you know, I choose to put more energy into trying to bring kind of the broader team with me on that, trying to explain to people why those things are important and ultimately will make a positive impact on a customer experience. And I often, yeah, I often use that as a way to drive consensus across everybody that's on the team. I think I've been really fortunate to put myself in a position in a situation where um, that lens is one that's really important and, and tends to catalyze everybody to point in the same direction, or at least then the discussion, it allows people to be a little bit to take things a little bit less personally and really think about how do we solve the problem together. And one of the most valuable tools that I've seen throughout my career is really being able to, yes, speak for the customer, but do so in a way that, you know, pulls from quotes or ethnographic research or data. What are some tools that you've used when you've not had all of the available information and you've had to work based off of assumptions of what is best for the customer? Because I think that that's where the water gets murky. You may assume that what's best for the customer is X, and I may assume that what's best for the customer is Y, which is where I think a lot of people run into issues. 
Yeah, that's such a good point. So definitely being able to have conversations and interviews and do kind of primary research is one of the most valuable tools. I completely agree with that because then everybody's kind of listening to the same kind of quotes and seeing the same kind of observing the same things. When that's not available, I tend to look at analogous products and analogous situations. I tend to go back to things that um, I've learned about human experience and other analogous situations and kind of lean into those. You know, there's a lot of different different tools. We go back to think about and redefine the use cases really talk through what we think those use cases are. Sometimes those conflicts arise because there's actually different users or different um, players in the ecosystem. So going back and kind of making sure that, you know, we're defining kind of what we're designing toward, um, that often also helps because, um, you know, when people have different assumptions, oftentimes it's also because, you know, it's not just a different assumption on the user, but it's actually, well, what's even the assumption on who the user is and how do they interplay with each other? Um, that's a tool that I found to be quite quite useful. Yes, and I love your call out about even making assumptions about who the user is because I do think that that's where a lot of that um, tension and conflict can arise in the first place. And with that, I know that you've spent, you know, close to four years at Apple as a product designer, and then you pivoted into Frog. So talk to me more about kind of how you've solved maybe the same kind of problems, but in two very different organizations and what that world of agency or innovation consultancy is like versus, you know, a being in-house is like. So I think that being at Apple is a really unique experience. They're one of the ways that a team gets catalyzed to a point in the same direction is exactly the question of what's right for the user. And I haven't seen that in my conversations with you know other clients. I haven't seen any client kind of consistently go back to say, okay, you know, we have all these competing requirements, what's right for the user? And I, I think that was something that was really cool about that culture exacting as it was, people were driven by this sense of purpose. I see that same type of mindset at Frog, where, you know, we don't necessarily say that exact phrase, what's right for the user, but we do say what's right for this particular situation or what's the Mm -hmm. use case. We're always going back to kind of first principles of, human behavior, first principles of the situation. We're always thinking about, well, is, you know, even though that's always been the way that it's done, is that the right way? You know, we have cultural norms have shifted around the use of technology. Technology is continuously shifting. All of these things change what we can do uh, and what our expectations of our built and digital environments are. And so, there's, I know you asked me about the differences, but actually in the roles that I've been, I've seen a lot of similarities in how those two um, approach the, the problem. And it makes sense because ultimately, if I say so myself, both Frog and Apple are like the epicenter of user-centric design and such an emphasis on, on design, which is why I'm personally super passionate about those companies. Maybe one of the techniques, if you will, that can de-escalate the challenges around figuring out 
who's the user, what's the best problem to solve is experimentation. And I work in the product development space as it pertains to Mm. software. And I think one of the greatest things we can say is, hey, let's A-B test it or let's release part of this feature and see if it resonates with the user. You worked on products like the iPad, MacBook Air, MacBook Pro, Mac Mini, and then throughout your tenure at Frog, I know you also worked across hardware and software. So how do you, you know, kind of balance um, the notion of experimentation when hardware is really waterfall driven, whereas software has some of those agile opportunities? I'm really glad that you brought up experimentation. I think it's a, it's such an important catalyst for getting everybody pointing mm-hmm. the same direction. So um, experimentation is is very much part of the process. You know, we are always from day one kind of putting together various mock-ups of uh, either physical products or um, user interfaces that we can kind of walk through and look at different versions. Definitely much easier to make a decision rather than kind of totally. talk. You know, we've, we've spent like a half a day talking about what's the right approach and then somebody will just like quickly make uh, a few options and it's really, really clear. Um we try as much as we can to test with users, and um, when when we're not able to, we kind of use frogs as a stand-in. So we'll often go grab people from around the office that are around and have them test different prototypes and give us feedback. Um, actually, even even when we're going into user research, we always test our user research process just to understand, you know, are we being clear? Are we being, are we asking things in a way that uh, people understand and give us the kind of information that we need? Um, it's really very critical part of our process. Uh, I think that in the hardware space, um, you have that opportunity to do this kind of A-B testing throughout the process, throughout the development process. And we, um, we definitely take that opportunity every step of the way. Um, we typically make a lot of different prototypes, uh, whether that's, again, putting something together out of cardboard or 3D printing, or even recently, like if we're working on something which is very complicated to um, make quickly, we'll put it into, like, for example, if it's very big or has, uh, or it's big and has complicated surfaces, like we... Um, we did like a autonomous scooter once that was very would be very challenging to prototype um but what we do is we put it in vr and we start seeing like what is it like and we'll combine those larger scale vr models with uh, maybe lower fidelity models to help bridge that leap but yeah you're right you once you when you make a hardware product it's much more difficult to actually modify it which is why that experimentation is probably even more important uh, early on and to make sure you're getting feedback. Completely agree. And I mean, that's what makes our jobs fun, right? I think it's this kind of all these really interesting problems to solve. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is actually your experience um, with Campfire. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Women in Innovation had a its inaugural Women um, in Innovation Awards, where Ina was uh, recognized as a rising star in tandem with her work for Campfire. And Fire is all about connecting with you know your remote team, which is such a huge problem that most of us have. And essentially, I know that there's a lot of different layers to the work that you 
are doing there. So I'd love to hear more about Campfire, your work with them, and some of the big learnings and takeaways you're able to share with us here. So the Campfire is a product that lots people collaborate on in 3D space, kind of like Google Docs. And it has three, um, three parts to it. The first one is a headset that allows you to look at a product in 3D space. The second part is a sensor that goes on the phone and allows you to interact with the product uh, as if you were interacting with your iPhone. Mm. It turns your iPhone into a trackpad for the product and into like a, a lightsaber that allows you to point to different pieces of it. Um, it just kind of goes on your phone. And then the third piece is a console, which is um, an X-shaped product that you put in the middle of the table or your space. And it allows everybody to kind of orient that 3D product in space. It's a really interesting solution for a very low barrier to entry product where you don't have to come up with a brand new way to interact with these 3D products like joysticks. You don't have to come up, understand how to use anything else. You could just put on this headset and have a really um, very natural experience. And when you think about this kind of product, to me, it kind of seems like there are a few things to consider here. One is, are people going to really be able to maybe overcome the fear of a technology? And I think we've seen that kind of with AI, where people wanted nothing to do with AI, and now it's the only thing that people talk about to a fault, in my opinion. But then I also think this notion of like, again, is this the right solution? And how do we balance that in real life experience and then the hardware experience? So how are you thinking about those barriers to entry, which I know you touched on a little bit? Yeah. I think this was another one where we really were thinking about what are the situations where this is a, a value add. You know, the team thought a lot about the applications and the use cases for teams that are remote, um, that aren't able to co-locate, for just looking at the way that um, product development happens where it might be designed in one place, it might be engineered and manufactured in a different place, it might be sold in a third place. How do we bridge the communications between all of these? And how do we make people really truly understand what this product is about? So Campfire is about breaking down those barriers. It's about helping kind of remote teams be able to look at a product and evaluate a product and think about the development process of that product without having to be in the same room all the time. So it really helps to uh, cut down on the need for travel and make fast decisions. It's something that allows a team to kind of prototype in this virtual way, kind of like, you know, you can... 3D printing will take you really far, but for some products, it's just... it's It takes too long. So... This is a way for people to prototype quickly. So really thinking about, you know, what are those discrete use cases that people need the product and how do we design for those? And I, I think there it takes a discipline to kind of focus. And I think that's one thing that I have to give props to the Campfire um, leadership team is they're really good at focusing and really understanding that, the differentiator for a product, the love for a product comes from really focusing onto 
the core set of users that have a true need. And when you do that, it's not that you're saying other people can't use it. It just means that you're really tailoring and articulating the needs of the product. Other people will use it too. It's not. It's it's absolutely not saying that your market has to be really small or that user base has to be really small, but it's saying that what your um, your the value proposition and kind of is there that you're supporting the the teams that are using this in the best possible way. And a lot of the times when people think about innovation consultancies, they typically think of innovation consultancies working with really, really large companies. Obviously, Campfire is an example of a startup. Um, the work that you guys did together ultimately helped them secure $8 million of funding, which means that they're pretty early on in their journey. So, you know, when you come in to work with startups, what is typically that role that you and or Frog uh, play? Is it product design? Is it product management? Or is it kind of like a non-articulated role that still is able to bring a ton, a ton of value? We help startups across kind of a very wide range of of needs. So we help them with go-to-market strategy. We help them understand who their core users are and articulate their needs. We help them um, to actually define their product. So everything from product management, but also, you know, how should those features show up in a product, whether that's a physical product, like, you know, what is the product architecture? What what should the product, uh, how should the product work? What should the product look like? Um, we help them with, kind of the digital experience surrounding either a physical product or just it's on its own. Um, we help them with developing a brand. Um, so really it's kind of the whole package of what they need to show up in the world. We'll do, we'll help them to design a pitch deck so that they can really clearly articulate their value and their trajectory to investors um, and kind of really we go out of our way to to try to understand what is it that's going to accelerate them to their next milestone and pull as many of those kind of elements of product design and development together for them. Yeah, and I ask this question because I do often think that people get scared away from the innovation industry because they're like, well, how could I articulate my value? And, you know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned through my time hosting this podcast and being in this space is a, there are so many different ways to do innovation, and B, it's not always about articulating something and giving it a very specific box or name. It's that ambiguity that really fosters this industry, which I find to be really exciting. Yeah, I think that ambiguity is something that we're kind of particularly skilled at working with and just kind of having gone through the process so many times we have a pretty good nose for which pieces of the ambiguity to leave ambiguous and which ones need the definition mm -hmm. in order to stand the product up. And um, I think that's something that's a super kind of interesting and joyful part of the process. Yeah, no, absolutely. And on the topic of ambiguity, I'd love to ask you one question that we ask all of our innovators, and that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? So one thing that I've been really excited about, and I think a lot of people have been really excited about, is sustainability and climate tech. And I've really seen that kind of gain steam over the last few years. 
I think it's going to be really transformative. It's one of those things. One is it's very important for us uh, as a planet, but two, pretty much everything has to be rethought from the ground up in order to deliver to deliver on kind of our our joint goals. This is where a lot of the industry is going to be going. Is thinking about you know how do we do that? How do we reimagine um, cars, appliances, our food system, our cities? How do we reimagine those in order to be more sustainable? How do we reimagine those to be more regenerative? So that I think is going to be the packed agenda. AI is going to is going to continue to be part of the conversation and a, a driving force. It'll be really interesting to see how these things support each other. I definitely don't think that the that AI is a fad and that it's going to go away, but um, it'll be really interesting to see how people can leverage it to um, accelerate their thinking as you know support toward these really important goals. For sure. And and to add to on the AI point, it also is like how people think about retail. I often compare it where, you know, online presence and e-commerce is so, so important, but there's still this human element and human factor which can't be removed. Um, So it's definitely an interesting uh, space to watch out for. And also with climate, um, we as humans have to make the push and have to make the difference. So I think it's uh, all really exciting things to solve for. And thank you so much for joining me on the Win-Win Podcast today. Thank you so much, Zoya. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.